0: In 2003, Aaron Ralston was hiking alone in the Blue John Canyon in, the Canyonland, in Canyonlands National Park in southeast Utah. While he was descending into one of the remote and exceedingly narrow canyons, a boulder fell and trapped his right arm. For five days, he survived off packed water and snacks, hoping someone would find him. Trouble was, Not only was the spot remote, but he hadn't told anyone where he was going. Realizing that he may never be found and running out of supplies, he was forced to amputate his arm by cutting through the bone using his multi-tool that included a knife. After freeing himself, he began the seven-mile walk back to his truck. During his journey, a family discovered him and alerted authorities. He lost 40 pounds during his ordeal and somehow, miraculously, avoided bleeding to death. This is a story of extreme measures. Another, Jose Salvador is a Salvatorian fisherman who spent 13 months adrift at sea. He is the first person in recorded history to have survived in a small boat at sea for more than a year. On November 17, 2012, Jose set off on a professional fishing trip with a young fisherman named Ezekiel Cordoba, with whom he had never worked. Having embarked from a fishing village on the Pacific coast of Mexico's southern Chiapas state, they planned to be out for about 30 hours hunting shark, tuna, and mahi-mahi. A few hours into their voyage, a storm struck that lasted five days and blew them off course. Jose called his boss on the ship's radio for help, but it, as much of the rest of the boat's electronics, had been disabled by the storm. The boat's motor was also damaged. A search party was sent, but after two days with no success, their boss gave up and assumed that they had drowned. Alone and without food or supplies, the two fishermen survived by eating raw fish, turtles, and jellyfish. They drank rainwater and turtle blood. As weeks turned to months, Cordoba became severely unwell from eating months of raw food and died. Jose then endured another nine months alone at sea until he eventually spotted a small island. Abandoning his boat and swimming to shore, he almost immediately met a local couple who alerted authorities. He had reached the Marshall Islands. His journey lasted 438 days, and his voyage is estimated to have covered between 5,500 to 6,700 miles. Both of these accounts here are stories of survival. Survival. Both of these accounts show the extreme measures that humans will take to survive in order to preserve life. And when we think about this passage of scripture here that Jesus of Jesus teaching, he too calls for extreme measures. And he calls for extreme measures here in Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. When it comes to battling against sin, we can see by the language that Jesus uses. Sin is no light matter. And what I want us to see here in verses 42 through 47 is the seriousness of sin. And we must take it serious. Jesus begins in verse 42 here. He's continuing his teaching in chapter 9 here. He's continuing his teaching on what it means and what it entails to be a follower of him. To belong to his kingdom. What does that look like? And since Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, his people likewise should conduct themselves in a way that is counter to this world. And in this passage here, Jesus focuses on the believer's relationship and response to sin. And we see here the seriousness of sin, verses 42-47. And the first thing that Jesus would, would say in this passage is he gives a warning. There are two warnings Concerning the seriousness of sin. And the first one is the warning against causing others to stumble. Notice with me verse 42. Jesus opens up and says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I want us to notice here and observe first, Who Jesus is speaking to. Though he's talking to his disciples, he gives out this general statement. And he says, whoever. Whoever. This means anybody here without distinction. It does not matter your status or your level of influence. We can understand that this passage speaks about us as well. We are not excluded from the whoever of this passage. So first he would notice and he would say, whoever. And then the next thing that Jesus says here in verse 42... Simply is cause to sin. That's the, the verb here. The word is scandalizo, from which we get to scandalize. And sometimes the translations are a little misleading. This, this, the ESV actually translates this too narrow. And cause to sin is too narrow of, of, of a term for what scandalizo means. To the wider sense... This phrase here means to cause someone to stumble. To cause someone literally to be tripped up and go on a wrong path. We can cause someone to stumble that would eventually fall into sin. And in, and in doing so, we would be guilty of breaking this command or not heeding this warning. And so literally, in a sense, to trip somebody up is what Jesus means here. In their own walk in their own pursuit of holiness, in their own walk with Christ. So whoever causes someone to sin or to trip someone else up, and to whom does he refer here? He says these little ones. It might be the same child that he used as an object lesson when he was teaching his disciples on who the greatest were. Certainly these little ones that he speaks of is children. It's a reference to children. Children. But we must understand that Jesus is not only referring to children. He's not saying, if you trip up children. What he's saying here is that if you, are to, if you are to cause someone to sin or to trip someone else up who is young in the faith, who is a little one, who is less mature than you, those that are innocent. When we think about little ones, they are naive. They are innocent, though they're not guilty. I live with them, I know. But they, are, they, they, are, they have this innocence about them, naive. They are easily led. Children desire to be led. And so Jesus says here, basically, anyone who causes someone who is an easy target to stumble into sin needs to watch out. And there comes a serious warning here. What's the consequence of verse 42? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me... Therefore, a follower of Christ to sin, there is a consequence. And Jesus says, it is better for him if a great millstone... Now, we don't typically work with millstones, but in the first century, there were various forms of these millstones, and they were used, these big stones, for grinding grain. In the reference here, this millstone would have been of the greatest size, roughly uh, about three feet in diameter with a hole in the center where they would put the grain, and then it would be dragged around by a donkey. And so this great millstone, circular maybe, about three feet in diameter, heavy, uh, very heavy stone. And Jesus says, "This would be better if this person who caused someone to sin would have this millstone literally put around their neck as they were wearing it. As I thought about this, it reminded me of like, you know, when a dog goes to the vet and they got the cone around their head, I thought of this and I saw the picture here of somebody with a millstone around their neck and being cast off into the water. It's not a pretty picture. It's not, it's not to be taken lightly here. This is, a, again, in all of this text, it is a sobering passage. And he's saying that this person, it is better To be thrown off into the sea, a painful death, suffocating, drowning. We have to ask the question, why so severe? Why so extreme? What is the point that Jesus is trying to make here to his disciples who are hearing this for the first time? And this is it. Jesus wants them to see the seriousness of sin. Brothers and sisters, sin is dangerous. Sin destroys Sin fractures relationships. Sin causes people to hate one another. Sin desensitizes us. Sin destroys. Sin cost Jesus his life. Sin leaves disaster in its wake. It's bad enough to do it to ourselves. But what Jesus is saying here is if you would cause another... To enter into this, it is disastrous. It is bad enough. Do not cause another to fall. You know, growing up, my brother and I got into a lot of trouble. Um, we were we we would antagonize one another. Um, you know, my my children, the girls, they 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 like getting stories of when Dad was growing up. And so they ask for these stories. They're kind of war stories, but I keep them G and PG. Um, And so every night, Dad, Dad, another story, another story. And um, so we've been going through the stories of Jonathan Edward every so often at night. And I thought about one with—that's what they call it. And so um, I thought about in in relation to this passage. There was a time where my brother and I, we were growing up in Navy housing, and. Uh, we would go off into the neighborhood, and quite literally, we would scandalize. And we were, we were, we were, we were boys. And there was one time, there were these old um, uh, fire alarms that were freestanding in the neighborhood. And if you would go up to it, and if you pulled the fire alarm, the fire truck would come. But they were old, and we didn't, we never saw them get used. And so I remember really poking at my brother. Hey Jimmy, I bet you won't go pull that fire alarm. I said, what are you scared? You know, and I remember leading him, tripping him up, getting him to go do it because I wasn't going to do it. So he goes and sure enough, he pulls the fire alarm and we didn't think anything of it. And we go about and all of a sudden you start hearing the sirens and the fire trucks pull into the Navy housing, and we're running for the woods. We don't want to be seen. We got caught. We got brought home by the military police. They brought us to my parents' house. We were 10 and 11 years old. We were like, I was so scared. I was so scared. And we met the wrath of of my father, and (laughs) I looked and said, it was him. He pulled the alarm. Well, he says, I did, but you made me do it. And I thought about that. Who was guilty? And the answer is, we were. I was just as guilty, if not worse. Thankful for grace. Thankful in the days of ignorance God has overlooked. But, and that's just an example of where I led someone into sin. I was the guilty one. And what we would see here, even in this passage of verse 42, we are not to lead others on a path towards falling away. But instead, we look at the negative. Then what should we do positive as disciples or followers of Jesus? We aren't leading people into a path towards sin. We are to lead them on a path towards righteousness. We are to lead people along the straight and narrow path. You see, every one of you in here has influence. And you are influencing the people in your lives. Are we leading them to sin, or are we leading them away from sin? Jesus says whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, to scandalize, it is better if you had just died. Sobering. So there's the first warning. Don't cause another to sin. But here's the second warning he would see, and this is verses 43 through 47. This is the warning against causing yourself to stumble. He says here, he mentions three body parts. He says, if your hand causes you to sin. Then he says, if your foot causes you to sin. Then he says, if your eye causes you to sin. And what Jesus is doing here in this passage is two things. His use of hand, foot, and eye, that is to represent the whole of the person. And so he's not leaving out, well, if my elbow, he's not, no, he's not just saying these specific parts, but the whole of your person. If any part of you causes you to sin. And then the second um, thing that he's doing here is the use of hyperbole. He says, cut it off. Now, we understand this is hyperbole because all of you, I believe in here, still have two hands. And you haven't literally cut your hand off. But Jesus is using hyperbole here to emphasize the extreme nature that one should go to go with in the battle against sin. It's kind of like the guy who gets stuck in the crevice and has to cut his arm off to survive. This was a, the, the extreme measure that he took. And so think here again on these three parts that Jesus references here. First, he says the hand. Think about the use of the hand. The hands are there to help, or the hands can be used to hurt. Hands build up, hands tear down. With your hand, you can give generously. With your hand, you can steal selfishly. With the hand, we scroll on our devices. With the hand, we type messages to others. With with his hand, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. With their hands, the Romans drove the nails into the helping hands of Jesus. With their hands, they picked up stones to kill Stephen. Yet also with his hand, Paul penned 13 letters in the New Testament. The hand itself is not evil, but it's what we do with it that could be. Consider the foot, as Jesus would bring it up here. The feet are the instruments that lead us or direct the path. With the foot we travel. Now remember, they didn't have an automobile here. This is the primary means of travel. We can use our feet to go places. Places we should go and places we should not go. Places that might cause us to stumble. With his feet, the prodigal son left home and journeyed where he did not belong. With his feet, Samson enters the house of Delilah. With his feet, Judas sought out the Pharisees to betray Jesus. With his feet, Demas deserts Paul. Yet again, with his feet, Paul travels the Pax Romana. Paul travels the Roman Empire bringing the gospel of peace. He would even write, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The foot is not evil. But where we choose to let it lead us could be. Again, think of the eyes. They are the windows of the soul. The eyes give way to the imagination and influence desire. Think about Eve. She had to first set her eyes upon the fruit. With the eyes, Eve looked upon the fruit and she ate it. With the eyes, Achan saw the spoil that was devoted to destruction and took some of it and hid it in his tent. With the eyes, one covets, as we even heard about this morning. With the eyes, one succumbs to the lust of the flesh. Yet we would see and read in Job 31 that Job made a covenant with his eyes not to lust. Again, the eye is not evil, but can be used for evil or for good. With his eyes, Jesus looks out upon the crowds, and with compassion he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. With his eyes, Jesus gazed upon his executioners as they had driven nails into his hand, as they had placed a crown of thorns upon his head, as they had raised him up on the cross, as they had put a sign and inscription above him, the king of the Jews, as they mocked him, as they pulled out his beard, as they spit at him, as they gave him the sour wine, as they caused him to suffer in agony. And with his eyes, Jesus looks out and says, Father, forgive them. Is with eyes Jesus had compassion on these people. And so here's the point that I want us to see here of these, these verses. What Jesus is saying is that if any member, hands, feet, eyes cause you to sin, cause you to lead you into stumbling, lead you astray, he says, cut it off, get rid of it, run away, limp away, crawl away. Ultimately, what Jesus is saying here is run for your life. Run for your life. To dabble in sin, to play with sin, is like playing with fire. You're going to get burned. But the more we do it, sometimes the easier it becomes. Run for your life. So when he says cut it off, now we know he's not literally saying, lose your arm, lose your eye, lose your leg. What does that mean then? Well, I'm convinced that when Jesus says to cut it off, this represents repentance. This is what repentance looks like. To turn away from. To take extreme measures. To walk in the complete other direction. If my feet are leading me to sin in this direction, to cut it off means to go in this direction. To have a radical reorientation of my life and my relationship to sin because my relationship to God has been changed cut it off take action against your sin you will never passively kill sin in your life you have never passively become a holier person it takes action it is offensive and sometimes it's defensive so if we are only if if we only fight temptation when it comes we are sure to lose We are sure to lose more often than we think. If when temptation rises up within us and we have not prepared ourselves ahead of time, we will be caught off guard. The battle against sin is intentional. It is every day. And we must live in this conscious awareness of the war within and without. Sin is all around us. And even as redeemed people of God, there still remains the battle of sin within us. Though the old man is dead and we are not fighting two natures, there is remaining sin as we seek to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. That's Romans eight thirteen. So principally, Jesus is saying here in this passage that if there's anything within your control that is causing you to sin, it's got to go. Anything within your control that causes you to sin, get rid of it. If your friendships lead you into sin, they got to go. If your computer is an avenue for sin, you need to restrict it. If scrolling through social media causes you to covet, causes you to set your eyes upon things that you would either lust after or desire more than what you have, if it causes a discontentment in you, if you look at it and you compare your life to others and say they have a great Instagram life, get off Instagram. It's that simple. If it's leading you to sin, to envy others, you don't need it. It's not producing any fruit in your life. If it is, it's rotten fruit. If your car enables you to go where you should not, you need to create boundaries and accountability. This is what it's saying here. What measures, what extreme measures do we take in our day-to-day lives against the, with this battle against remaining sin? An application of even this, I would say, set up structures and healthy boundaries before temptation comes, so that you would be able to withstand on that day. I know in my life, the further that I am away from the word, from prayer, and from the fellowship of God's people on a regular basis, the closer I am to giving in to sin. This is why the regular rhythm of even Sundays and and corporate worship is is an accountability. Sorry, if we distance ourselves from the people of God, we can easily find ourselves going from hot to lukewarm to cold to a life of sin. Before we even look back and say, where have I fallen from? But the means of grace that God has given us, prayer, the word, the fellowship of the saints, are all all to be used to keep, hold us accountable. To keep us on that straight, narrow path. I need my brothers and sisters. I need the word. I need to be in prayer. Because left unto my own devices, I'm not going to passively fall into greater levels of holiness. So what Jesus says here, it is better for us to enter life. When he uses life... And then he synonymously talks about the eternal kingdom of God. It's one and the same. Life everlasting. Eternal life. The kingdom of God. Heaven. This is what he means here. He says it is better for us to enter life, the eternal kingdom of God, with battle scars. To come in wounded because we fought in a war. Than to forfeit heaven for the fleeting pleasures of sin. But also know this. The hands, the feet... The eyes only go where the heart has already been. We can restrict ourselves completely. And even if you went to a deserted island, you will still sin on that island because you're bringing you with you. And so we must also know it is the heart that must be transformed because as the heart, from the heart, flows all of the desires and the actions of life. So this is what we would see here in this first point is the seriousness of sin And the seriousness of sin leads here to the second, the consequence of sin. Let me read this to you again. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Summary, this is what Jesus says here. Better to enter life, better to enter the kingdom of God, wounded, battle scars, crippled, limping, with a patch on your eye, Because you went to war. You went to war against the battle against remaining sin. Because you took the command of holiness, serious, and to strive for holiness. That was the pursuit of your life. It is better for you to go in this battle. And you will win some. And you might lose some. But you are battling through life. It is better for you to enter this way than to cruise into hell because you lived a life defeated by sin. Observe here in this passage with me the, consequ- the consequence of sin that Jesus speaks of here. In verse 42, it's death. What does he say in 43? He says, to go to hell. 45, to th- be thrown into hell. Verse 47, again, thrown into hell. And then in verse 48, he gives a description. Where the worm does not die and the fire never goes out. Sin that is not atoned for. Sin that has not been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Sin that was not nailed to the cross. Sin that is unrepented of results in everlasting judgment. This is what Jesus is saying here. And when he says hell, the Greek word is Gehenna. It comes from the, the, the Hebrew location, which is Gehinnom, Its its location is referred to in Joshua chapter 15, verse 8. And this region, this actual physical location that Jesus is referencing here in the use of this word, it's an area that's south of Jerusalem. It's also referred to as the Valley of the Sun, S-O-N. It was a place of fire. This is a terrible place that Jesus speaks of. King Ahaz and King Manasseh took their children to this place, set them on fire, and sacrificed them to the god Molech. These were kings of Israel who did this. It is referred to as a cursed place. Children of all kinds, not just these two, but children were taken to this area. They were set on fire, and they were offered as living, burning sacrifices to the Canaanite god, this Canaanite deity. By the first century, this location, Gehenna, it was a place where they took all the garbage out of the city of Jerusalem and burned it. And so when Jesus references this location, the disciples did not have to ask any questions. It is widely in the Jewish culture of the first century, everybody knew that this location was a place of really to be condemned. It was a cursed location. It was a wicked place. Nobody talked about this place lightly. Nobody wanted to visit this place. They would burn the garbage there, and it was a place where they burned children alive. A condemned place. But lest the disciples of Jesus think that he is referring to just a physical place on earth, Jesus describes this place here, hell, of even worse than this location south of Jerusalem. And he gives two descriptors here in verse 48. He says, where the worm does not die, and this is reference to Isaiah, and the fire is not quenched. Worms die in the garbage heap south of Jerusalem. The fire burns down there in the first century, but it goes out. Jesus is speaking here in verse 48 of an everlasting fiery judgment, where consciousness does not cease and fire does not go out. There's nothing lighthearted. There's nothing funny. This is sobering. This is scary. And it should cause us to tremble. See, Jesus compares life and the kingdom of God, and they're held in opposite with hell. Furthermore, Daniel Chapter 12, verse 2 references and speaks of a place of everlasting contempt. Jude 6, where there is eternal chains. Revelation 14, 10 and 11, the torment of fire and sulfur in the presence of the Lamb. People talk about hell. Hell is hell because God's not there. The actual reality is hell is hell because the presence of God is there. And it's before the wrath of the Lamb. Smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, no rest day or night. This is the consequence that Jesus speaks of. The consequence of all sin that has not been paid for and repented of. And this is the point. Unrepentant sin results in everlasting torment. This is Jesus' message. And so, the question then becomes how could a loving God send people to hell? Isn't that the exact opposite of who God is? Well, we must understand something of justice and holiness as well. Holiness and justice demand payment for sin. You know what wouldn't be loving is if we didn't have this passage. Warnings are loving. I tell my children, don't go play in the road. I want to warn them because if you do, It could be really, really bad. I want to warn them of the dangers if you do this. Avoid this. Run for your life. This is Jesus' message. And as a warning, he is showing us there is a means of escape. And he himself is that means. As the Apostle Creed even says, that Jesus, after being crucified uh, under Pontius Pilate, descended into hell. What does he do? Jesus pays the fullness of the price that we owe. Jesus doesn't just bear our sins on the cross. Yes, he does that, but he suffers the torment that we deserve so that he will have exhausted the wrath of God, paid in full, so that we would not taste of any of these things. Jesus provides the rescue in order for us to flee the wrath to come. And it is a loving invitation of the Father and of Christ. Here he says, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary, all who are burdened. Come and find rest for your souls. So with the warning, there is also the gospel as the means of escape. So everybody that goes to hell goes because they have willfully rejected the free offer of the gospel. This is Jesus' message. So instead of changing it, softening it, twisting it, we proclaim it, we fear it, and we are motivated by it. Hell is as real as heaven. Spurgeon said this, he said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. It's as simple as this. Your sins are either on Christ, paid for by him, or they will be paid for by you. But the gospel says Christ has borne our sins in his body, reconciling us with God and putting us in right relationship with him. So that there is no fear of judgment, but there's the hope of eternal life. So this is the consequence of sin that Jesus gives here and he finishes here in verses 49 and 50 with the counter to sin the counter to sin these are his salt sayings here look again with me in verse 49 he says for everyone will be salted with fire this is the only time this language is even used in all of the scripture what does he mean here Well, to be salted with fire, fire in this context of Jesus' speaking, speaks of suffering. So he says, everybody will be salted with fire. So the likely meaning of this phrase that that I believe that Jesus is speaking of here is to be tested through trials. To be salted with fire is to be tested through trials. Everybody will face trials or suffering for the sake of purification, to be salted with fire is another way of speaking of going through the refiner's fire. One commentator, and, and, and I certainly read commentaries. Um, oftentimes, though, I don't find them overly useful. I, I, I'll read commentaries on the passage, and it'll be just pretty much exactly what I wrote or read or said myself. And so uh, sometimes they're useful. Sometimes they're helps that don't really help you. They actually just, you, you just think that they're the authority. Um, And they're not, usually. But Hendrickson said something good here. He said, concerning this phrase, which I needed commentaries to consult with. He says, not only is it going to separate being salted with fire, not only is it going to separate good people from bad people, believers from unbelievers, but even within the hearts and lives of believers, it will destroy what is bad and bring out what is good, causing them to be a preservative force, a salting salt, in the midst of their environment. So this is what Jesus means when he's talking about being salted with fire. And so, I, so the first thing I want us to notice here in a counter to sin, when we talk about being salted with fire, is know that when trials, temptation, or testing comes into our lives, this is what's happening. We are being salted with fire in order to be purified, in order to be refined, to be of greater use for the kingdom Of God. So everyone will be salted with fire. And then he says also in verse 50, salt is good. I think we would all agree with that. Salt is very good. I couldn't imagine a world without salt. But he says, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? This is interesting. And I was trying to do some research, and I don't think it's possible for salt to expire. And so how does salt lose its saltiness? I've never been took some salt and said, that's saltier than this salt. Salt is salt, right? It's the only rock that people eat. But salt here is a metaphor, and he says salt is good. Why? Because it preserves, because it imparts flavor. Salt has a job to do, but if it loses its saltiness which only happens, the only way salt can lose its saltiness is if it gets mixed with another element, if it gets diluted. And so in the first century, in and around the Dead Sea, in that area, there was a lot of gypsum. And gypsum would, looks a lot like salt, and it would be mixed with salt, which would form a diluted form, and it was worthless. It wasn't to be used Gypsum is colorless, white, and it looks a lot like pure salt. And so when it's mixed, salt then becomes diluted, becomes ineffective. See, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount speaks of the worthlessness of salt because it becomes polluted. And so when we think about the counter to sin, we first understand that we will be tested by trials to produce a greater usefulness. Second, what we would want to see here in the counter to sin is that usefulness for the kingdom of God comes with a commitment to practice purity. So we do not want to become mixed with the world. We, do not want to become, uh, we don't want to mix uh, salt and sin together. No, we want to remain pure. We want to be pursuing holiness. We want to be useful. As believers, we live lives of purity, unmixed by the world, not because of our fear of judgment, but because we desire to please and be used by the Lord. I desire personally in my life to be used of God. All of us would say, yes, I would love to serve the Lord. I want to give my life as service to the Lord. I want to be fit for the Master's work. Well, if I desire that, I must pursue faithful obedience and be, I don't know, how do you put it? Be a salty disciple, one who is useful. It's not a fear of what God will do to me, but it's a fear that I would not be used for what the work of God through me. And the final thing he says here, he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the final counter to sin. And what Jesus is essentially saying here is that goodness must reside in you. Have salt within yourselves is another expression of Jesus saying in Matthew, you are the salt of the earth. Therefore, as the salt of the earth, live at peace with others. Now remember what the disciples were doing in verses 33 through 37. They were arguing about who's the greatest, who's the best, who's the most elevated in the kingdom. And Jesus says, no, that won't do, no fighting, no jockeying for position, no arguing about who is the greatest. Division destroys gospel witness. You cannot be a salty disciple and sow division. So this is the third counter to sin. He says, live out your calling. And this is the exhortation to you all and to my own heart this evening. Live out your calling as salt and light in the world. A salty disciple is one who knows tests and trials will come. One who remains steadfast, unmixed, not deluded. Lives out the qualities of peace, truth, Kindness, goodness, and unity. The Holy Spirit at work within that person. So ultimately, I want to just close here and leave you with a question. What measures are you taking in your life against the battle against remaining sin? Are you taking extreme measures? Are you living in a cycle of defeat Ultimately, the lesson here for this passage is that we are to be salty but not sinful. And remember this, sin is serious. We must take drastic measures. As those two men that we looked at at the beginning in those stories would take whatever measures necessary to survive, we must take the necessary measures of battling sin in our lives. Sin is serious. Take drastic measures. The consequence is eternal. Run for your life. The counter is to live a salty life for the glory of God and the good of others. And we have the hope of the gospel since Jesus went before us and Jesus bore our sins that we can live a life free of sin to pursue godliness in obedience to this passage. May be encouraged. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you again for these warnings, sobering as they are. May we be humbled. May we seek to live lives that are honoring to you. May we take the sin that remains so serious. May we we lay it aside, every sin and weight that clings so closely. And we can do so by gazing upon Christ, to look to him who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is exalted at your right hand. May Christ ever be our motivation. May we understand that we do not walk this battle against sin alone, but we've been empowered by your Holy Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And so let us not operate in the strength of self, But let us not also neglect the means of grace, Father, that you have given us through the word, through prayer, through the fellowship of the saints. Thank you, Lord, for your word that we could hear preached and proclaimed this morning and this evening. May you bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.